Good afternoon and welcome to Mito Action's monthly expert series. My name is Stephanie Harry, patient support coordinator here at Mito Action. And on behalf of Mito Action, we want to thank you so much for joining us for today's important presentation with Emily Hall, dedicated to seven simple strategies for sibling support. Today's presentation will be recorded and available on Mito Action's website, as well as on our Apple podcast. Google Play, and Spotify. If you're joining us via phone, I would encourage you to follow along with the presentation slides that can be found on your website at www.mitoaction.org slash resources slash sibling support. If you are joining us via computer, you should see the presentation on your screen. We encourage you to ask questions throughout the presentation using the Q&A feature on the bottom menu bar of your screen. If you're calling in via phone, please feel free to submit your questions into us by email at info@mitoaction.org. We will do our best to get through as many questions as possible at the end of today's presentation. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce Emily Hall. Emily Hall is the director of the Sibling Support Project at Kindering. The Sibling Support Project is the first national program dedicated to the lifelong and ever-changing concerns of millions of brothers and sisters of people with special developmental and health concerns. Emily is a social worker, author, and trainer who has provided workshops and groups for siblings and families. She's presented extensively on sibling issues and has conducted and published sibling research research. As a sibling herself and board member of the National Sibling Leadership Network, Emily has written about her experiences in blogs, magazines, and books such as Thicker Than Water. She's also co-authored or she's co-editor of the Sibling Survival Guide and Dispensable Information for Adult Brothers and Sisters of People with Disabilities, published in 2014. Emily earned a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Massachusetts, a Master of Fine Arts from Columbia University, and a Master of Social Work from Hunter College at the City University of New York. So please join me in welcoming Emily Hall. Thanks to Mito Action for hosting us and for really creating the space for siblings to shine. Um, my name is Emily Hall. As, uh, as was mentioned, I'm the director of the Sibling Support Project, and I'm here to talk about seven simple strategies for sibling support. We get calls and emails and uh, contacts from parents all the time who are really searching for ways to ensure that um, that all of their children feel supported and cared for and special. Um, and we know that that's challenging sometimes when, um, when there's a child who have, might have some unique uh, needs. And we hear from parents all the time that feel so worried that they're really not able to devote the time and attention they wish they could to their other kiddos. And we are here to say that, first of all, by even just worrying about these things and having these thoughts, you're already so far ahead of the game and that really indicates that you are a very thoughtful and conscientious parent. And then the other good news is that there really are some, some simple and um, really manageable ways for parents to support their, their other kiddos each and every day. And so that's, that's really what we want to share today. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Sibling Support Project, we're the first national program in the United States dedicated entirely to supporting siblings of people with developmental health and mental health concerns. 
We are um, located right outside of Seattle, Washington, and we are a proud program of Kindering, which is Washington State's largest early intervention provider. We do our work in a few different ways. First, through our um, education efforts. So we have many books that have been written for and by siblings of all ages. We also talk regularly uh, to the media and make sure that sibling stories are being shared. We, we also directly support siblings through these amazing things called Sib Shops. And I'm gonna share just a little bit of information about that with you. We conduct a number of conferences, workshops, lectures, uh, future planning workshops for uh, families and professionals. And then we also have three online groups that are uh, dedicated entirely to supporting siblings of different ages. Those three groups live on Facebook, they are SIBNET for our adult siblings, SIBTEEN for our adolescent siblings, and then of course SIB20 for siblings who are in their 20s. All of these groups are amazing spaces where siblings of different ages can come together for information, validation, and support. So if you are a sibling, if you know a sibling who could benefit from being part of a community of other SIBs, please tell them about these groups. I did mention SIB shops just a minute ago, and it's, it's really important, I think, for all parents. I think every parent of a child who has uh, a, a developmental or health concern to know about SIB shops, if they also have another child, they really are our answer for the same kind of common sense peer support that parents get from uh, a good parent-to-parent -parent program or parent support group. Many of you parents out there cannot imagine walking this path alone without without the support of other parents. And that's really our goal with SIB shops. But SIB shops are invented for kids. And so they revolve around play and fun and give uh, siblings an opportunity to meet other brothers and sisters, maybe for the first time within your community to talk about the ups and downs of having a sibling uh, with, with health concerns and uh, to kind of help each other problem solve those unique situations that siblings find themselves in. So if you want to know more about Sib Shops, please come to our website. But I really just want to dive into one of our biggest missions, which is to help people understand, first of all, why it's important to support siblings. I think when we think about uh, family support, sort of the traditional definition of family support in our universe, we're really talking about parent support, right? We're talking about groups and programs and resources for parents of kids with various uh, health concerns. And too often, siblings really aren't part of that picture. They aren't really a consideration in the support universe. So I spend a lot of my time traveling around sort of talking about why it's important to support siblings, which I think is so, so relevant to our conversation today, because we're going to talk about the nuts and bolts of how to support siblings, but let's start with the why. First of all, did you know that siblings' experiences parallel parents' experiences? We know this from the research and from the clinical literature on siblings, that siblings experience many, if not most, of the same issues as parents, as well as some unique concerns of their own. Uh, in fact, I wish that there were more people whose full-time job it was uh, to worry about the well-being of siblings, of people with developmental and health concerns. I wish we had just as many of me out there as we have 
of uh, professionals who worry about the concerns of parents, right? So far, when we think about, again, those sibling supports, they're just not as robust as those that, are, that, are, that exist for parents. The second reason it's important to support siblings, well, guess what? Sibling issues are lifespan issues. These brothers and sisters, think about it, will be in the lives of the child with a special health concern longer than anyone, right? Certainly longer than any provider and probably depending on the situation longer even than parents, right? This is a relationship that can easily exceed decades and decades and decades, right? Which is a long, long time. Um, and so sibling issues are lifespan issues. Siblings who are preschoolers will have some unique concerns. Siblings who are senior citizens will have some unique concerns. And those concerns will really evolve and change over the, the course of the, the lifespan of the individual and of the family. The third reason it's so important that all of us are here today to think about supporting siblings is that siblings spend quantity time. And what do I mean by that? If you look at sort of the lifespan, right? Over the course of the lifespan, it turns out that siblings spend a great deal of time together. They have high levels of contact, particularly earlier in life, right? And then again, uh, in, in the, the later stages of life. And we know this from the research, this is true of all siblings, uh, not just siblings of people with disabilities. Siblings spend a good deal of time together, especially when they're young, right, think about it, your whole world revolves around your family, right, and then what happens, uh, what happens at home is so, so uh, front and center for, for all of us, and so um, this is a really important time to think about how we can support siblings. Uh, siblings spend quality time, and by that, I mean that um, regardless of how amazing inclusion is, and I'm a big fan of inclusion and inclusive classrooms, there's no classmate, right, in an inclusive classroom who will have as great an impact on the social development of a child with a disability or a special health concern as his or her brothers and sisters, right? This is a 24-7 social model. And then finally, um, what we do recognize for um, siblings who grow into adulthood with their brothers and sisters that oftentimes siblings really do step in as the next generation of caregivers. And many siblings feel woefully unprepared to, to serve in that role. Um, but we're gonna talk about some strategies that we can all use to change them. So let's move on. And now that we sort of understand why it's important to support siblings, let's think about how. And these seven strategies are Strategies that I hope if you're a parent, you will consider using at home with your own children. Uh, if you're a provider, I hope that you um, share these tips with maybe the parents who you work with. Uh, and, and emphasis on the acknowledgement that we, we certainly know that parents are so, so busy tending to the needs of their child who has a diagnosis, right? We know this. And that oftentimes just feels like there aren't enough hours in the day. There might not be enough fuel in the tank in our proverbial tanks. And so these seven strategies are really um, intended to be very sort of easy everyday things that we can all do to support siblings. So the first one is to provide siblings with age appropriate information. 
We know from the research that one of the biggest parallels between the sibling experience and the parent experience is that, that need for information about the diagnosis, right? Uh, siblings need to know uh, so many things that they didn't cause the, the diagnosis, they can't catch uh, the diagnosis, that they need to have age-appropriate information to be able to answer questions, not only for themselves, but questions that other peers might ask them in not the nicest of ways, right? We know that kids can be just downright mean sometimes. Um, and so it's so important for, for young siblings to have uh, information in language they can really understand and that makes sense to them. Teenagers, adult siblings, really need to understand information about the future and the future plans for the person with the diagnosis. Um, and this information can come in written forms, right? There, there's so many great written resources nowadays, websites. I hope if you're a provider, um, I say this all the time to professionals, if you have a website about the services you provide, please make sure that there's a section on that website that is friendly for young readers. Um, if you're a parent, we strongly, strongly encourage parents to reach out to your providers and to say, hey, by the way, you know, I'm bringing Josh next week for therapy and his, his younger sister, Sarah, actually has some questions. Um, would you spend just like 10 minutes with her at the end of the session next week and talk with her, talk with Sarah about some questions she might have? The, the kind of the, the downside is that, you know, we know that many providers don't automatically think of this as sort of being part of their part of their job. The good news, though, is that we have yet to meet one who refuses to do this. In fact, most providers say, well, of course, Sarah has questions. We would love to be able to share information with her. Bring her on by. We'll chat for 10 minutes. And then if she has more questions after that, you can just let me know anytime in the future. Opening up that line of communication between a professional and a sibling can be so, so important and validating. Strategy number two is to provide siblings with opportunities to meet other siblings. Obviously, uh, I will tell you uh, as the director of the Sibling Support Project that we think sib shops are a wonderful way to do this, but they're not the only way. Um, we have a directory of, of uh, registered sib shops in uh, just about every state and in about 20 countries around the world. Uh, on our website, siblingsupport.org. But if there isn't a sib shop in your community, or if you're looking for other ways to connect your sibling, your kiddo to other siblings, think creatively, right? Are you planning a play date for your kiddo with a diagnosis? And if so, is there a sibling you can tag along so your other kiddo can meet another sibling? If you're affiliated with an organization, like Mito Action, for example, um, is there some kind of event or initiative that you could sort of carve out some time for siblings to get together? Maybe it's a fundraising event. Maybe it's a, a, an annual gathering conference, right? What can you do to bring siblings together? Maybe it's a fundraising initiative, right? Put sibs to work. They love to contribute and give back. Um, siblings can also meet other siblings uh, on the pages of books. We have several uh, that we recommend on our website. Uh, in films and movies. So there are really a lot of great opportunities for siblings to meet others and maybe not feel quite so alone, right? That they are the only person 
uh, in the world who is, uh, you know, walking this path. Strategy number three, encourage good communication with typically developing children. When we talk about good communication around here anyway, we really like the principles of active listening. And I personally think active listening is a wonderful tool to use with anyone, uh, anyone in the world really, and especially with children and especially with siblings who want to be heard and validated. And if you forget everything I say in this entire presentation, just remembering that one fact, I think will be so helpful in your relationship with your kiddos um, and your relationship with families you support. Siblings want to be heard and validated, right? And so when we think about active listening, we think about really being present, right? When someone is talking to us, when a sibling, for example, is talking to us, a kiddo, is sharing with us, uh, giving verbal and nonverbal cues to let them know that we're listening, right? And, and you know what? Not necessarily uh, coming up with solutions to fix their problems for them. You know, siblings, children in general are really resourceful. Oftentimes they just need to have the time and space to be able to talk through what their ideas are. The same is really true of siblings. Siblings wanna be heard and validated and really provided the time and space kind of come to their own conclusions and their own solutions. And there's a really great book out there called How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. It's a, like a New York Times bestseller. It's a crash course in active listening. I strongly, strongly recommend it. We can certainly provide that resource for you all, um, let you know where to find that. But that's a really good framework to kind of start thinking about what, what good communication can look like. Strategy number four, encourage parents, so all of you, to set aside special time with siblings. Now, most of us feel that we really don't have enough hours in the day already, right? As I said at the beginning of the talk, and we recognize this. But the good news is that with siblings, a little goes a long way. I'll share a personal um, story from my own life. I, I am a sibling, which is why this work is so important to me. Uh, you know, my parents were often quite busy with my brother and, and his, uh, you know, tending to his needs. And I remember growing up every Friday, my mom and I would drive 15 minutes, not very far, to pick up dinner and 15 minutes home. And on that ride for that 30 minutes, uh, I had my mom's undivided attention. It was amazing. We would listen to the radio. Back then, we listened to the radio. We would talk. We would maybe just look out the window. Um, but it was just so nice to have that special time with her. And I knew that that was just my special time. We've heard other siblings talk about maybe accompanying their, their sibling and their parent to a therapy and waiting in the car for that 50 minutes a week or whatever it is, twice a week. Um, and listening to podcasts or talking or singing or just, you know, kind of enjoying the silence together. Maybe it's, maybe it's parents letting the siblings stay out 20 minutes after the, the child with a disability, the child with a diagnosis is in bed, right? So that that sibling can just have that 20 extra minutes um, to, to spend that time together. So a little goes a long way. Maybe you keep a journal, you know, and you pass it back and forth. It's just you and the sib. Just leave a little note. Hey, how was your math quiz today? I was thinking of you. 
uh, and, and allowing the child to kind of write back when they have time, no deadlines, right? This isn't an assignment, but just another way to keep lines of communication open and really kind of set aside that special time. We also are big believers in respite. We know there's never enough of it, but if you are um, lucky enough to have access to it in your community, please consider uh, utilizing it and being able to maybe spend some time uh, with your with your other kiddo and maybe just recharge your own batteries. Strategy number five, learn more about life as a sibling. And as I said earlier, there are so many great opportunities to do this nowadays on the pages of books, um, films, movies. Um, we oftentimes put together adult sibling panels where parents and professionals can sort of hear directly from the experts, siblings, about their experiences. There are really great opportunities that I think are important for parents to understand the, the variety of sibling experiences that are out there so that you can get a better sort of grasp on the many facets of being a sibling. Um, and a lot of them are good, right? When we talk about sibling experiences, we emphasize that, sure, there are challenges, absolutely, just like parents experience, but just like parents, there are also opportunities, right? There are many silver linings, some of them hard won, as you all know, I know you understand that one, it was hard won silver linings, but they are positives just the same. And so we really want to emphasize that when we think about the sibling experience, when we think about life as a sibling, it's really kind of a, a, mixed, a mixed experience, right? It's not all one thing or all the other, just like life for all of us, right? Um, life as a sibling can have ups, downs, and everything in between. And it's really helpful to be able to understand that. Strategy number six, encourage parents to reassure their children by making plans for the future. And we understand that everybody's trajectory looks different, right? Not everybody has the same path or the same length of a path. And we believe that planning for the future starts early and really at every transition point. And we really want to ensure that brothers and sisters have opportunities to be part of those conversations. Earlier, I talked about the fact that many siblings who do wind up stepping into some kind of caregiving role for their brothers and sisters, they often feel unprepared to step into this role. And a lot of this is for the best and most loving reasons that siblings don't receive information about what's happening with their brothers and sisters along the way, right? It goes back to that that idea that siblings really do need information the same way parents do. And so when we think about including siblings in conversations about the diagnosis, about the treatment plan, about what we can expect, or maybe what we are unsure about, even though there could be many, many questions, and we know sometimes the road to a diagnosis is long and bumpy, Sometimes the road to understanding what uh, uh, an effective treatment plan looks like can be long and bumpy. And oftentimes it's for those reasons that parents might hesitate to talk with their, their other children, to include their other children in conversations about what's happening right now. But that is so important um, because 
it paves the way to be able to have conversations about what's next, even if there are a lot of question marks, right, in that picture of what's next. Uh, and so we really, really do encourage parents to um, be really open and talking with their children uh, about sort of where we're at right now, what next steps might look at look, look like, and to really kind of understand the sibling's perspective, right? Um, we often invite parents, the same parents who, for those loving and um, protective reasons, don't, don't necessarily share information about what's happening um, medically or, or um, in terms of a diagnosis or a treatment plan. They don't share that information because they don't upset or burden or worry their other child. But we, we often invite parents to consider that, you know, this diagnosis is happening not just to one person in the family, but to the entire family, right? That siblings, dads, moms, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, whoever is part of that family, you know, everyone is experiencing that, that diagnosis in their own way. And by not talking about it, that doesn't change that fact, right? And so when we talk about making plans for the future, um, we talk about, you know, sort of considering that everybody might have different ideas about the future and we want to honor and respect all of those different ideas and make sure that siblings especially have a voice in, you know, sharing their concerns, sharing their hopes, their dreams, their fears, their goals for the future so that they really can, um, really make a choice to be lovingly involved in the lives of their brothers and sisters, right? And that really starts through open conversation and to helping siblings feel like and understand that they really do have a voice um, and that, that their, their voice really matters, right? That everybody in the family has a role to play and that everyone has ideas that um, should certainly be discussed and shared. So. That's a tough one for many of us, for many of us parents, right? Because I think one of the biggest barriers to future planning is, um, well, who really wants to sit around and talk about a time when I am no longer here, right? That is not my idea of funding uh, or for many parents, but we do really encourage parents to think about how to start that conversation uh, because it is so, so important. And we know that once siblings are involved in those conversations, it is much easier to feel um, to feel ownership and uh, a willingness to be involved. And then last but not least, our last strategy of the day is to remember the single strongest factor affecting a sibling's interpretation of disability is really the parent's interpretation of disability or diagnosis, maybe in this case that if we as parents sort of set the tone that, you know, this diagnosis is the biggest tragedy to befall our family, you know, probably our other children are going to kind of follow in our footsteps, right, and believe sort of that this is the way to respond. However, if we greet this diagnosis with as much, you know, humor and grace as possible, we have every reason to expect that siblings will follow suit, you know, at the end of the day. Not to say that there won't be some bumps in the road, for sure there will be, but if we model, you know, what it looks like to be resilient and hopeful, 
and to know that maybe we, we can't control the outcome of our situation, but we can control our journey, right? We can control the steps we take and, um, and, and how, we, how we approach the path, right? We have every reason to expect that siblings will follow suit. I just want to thank you all so much for making the time to um, really start to think about how to support siblings in, I hope what you agree will be really, was really practical ways and to take the time to kind of consider uh, the siblings' perspectives because I think uh, siblings obviously play a really valuable role in their families and their communities. They have so much to offer and they're so deserving. Right? They're so deserving of our, uh, of our time and attention and support. So if we can find these small, consistent ways to demonstrate that support, it really, really makes a big difference. And, you know, child development experts will tell you this, but it is not these big sweeping gestures that really make the difference in terms of uh, demonstrating to a child that you care about and support them, right? Not that any child will turn down a trip to Disney, for example, right? I'm not saying that, that, um, that would be silly. But what really counts, what we know from the research is those everyday gestures, um, those little things that we do that are consistent in letting our children know that we, that we support them and that we care. Um, that's really what's going to make the biggest difference at the end of the day. So. Thank you all for, for being here today. Uh, check out our website if you wanted to know more about the books or um, any of the other things that we talked about today. And I am so excited to turn it over to do a, a Q&A and to kind of hear what you all are thinking. And I hope you'll share your experiences with us so that we can all learn from one another. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Emily. Um, I just want to say how much I appreciate your work and all that you do in this area. Um, I was a sibling myself growing up, and it's just so wonderful that people are talking more about sibling support. Um, so we've left some space here, guys. We want to be able to take this time to dive into some questions. So please do not hesitate to ask anything that's on your heart. Um, as we start diving into questions, please continue to ask and share your thoughts through the panel on the side. Uh, we have question answers. I already see a couple of questions coming through. Also, feel free to raise your hand um, if you would prefer just to ask the question yourself. I can try to unmute you. Um, so let's go ahead and, and dive into some questions. Emily, can you hear us? I can hear you. For some reason, I can't start my video. I think the host has to enable that. Okay, hold on one second. Let's see. Kyra, if you're here, can you help with the video? Let me see. Um, so I seem to be logged in twice. Yeah, Kyra, let me see if she is, hold on one second. No, you're not logged on twice. It's, it's how we had the video displayed. So let me see if, um, 
me see if Kyra can do that for you. And then we'll just get started because everybody can hear you. Okay. I can go ahead and start with the first question from Ezra. Yeah, go ahead. And if we can figure the video out, we'll go ahead and and take care of that. Thank you so much, Emily. Of course. So Ezra asks, thank you so much for your very helpful presentation. You're very welcome, Ezra. One question I have is how to answer the really difficult questions. For example, during a long hospitalization and regression for my son, my daughter asked, will he pass away because of this disease? I was shocked and just told her the first thing that came to my mind, which was the truth. I don't know. Is there a better way to approach the really hard questions or big feelings? That is such an excellent question, Ezra. Thank you for, thank you for asking it and for sharing your own personal experience. Uh, honestly, you handled it beautifully. And one of the things that we talk about when we talk about the parallels between siblings and parents, and one of the biggest parallels is that siblings need truthful information about their brother or sister's um, diagnosis and and disease. And admitting that you don't know was, first of all, very brave (laughs) and very honest. And I would would wager (laughs) went a really long way to build trust between you and your daughter and to help her feel that you um, value her enough to be honest with her, right? Um, children are, uh, you know, very adept, I think, at identifying when we are being honest and when we're not. Um, children are very good at assessing, (laughs) assessing us, right? Anyone who's ever been a substitute teacher knows this, right? Within the first 30 seconds of you walking into the room, they know whether or not you're really there with them and for them. So, Um, so I, I really do believe that, um, being honest and sometimes admitting when we don't know something, uh, is the greatest gift that we can give to siblings because the truth is there are so many unknowns, right? There are so many unknowns in, in our journeys and to be able to go through that together, um, is really important, not only to, help the sibling feel heard and respected, um, but also to, to, so they know that um, they are a valued part of this process and that, um, that it's okay for them to ask questions and for them not to know, right? Like we're modeling what I consider to be grace, right? The grace to admit that this is long and hard and complicated and sometimes we just don't have the answers. And that's a really important life skill, right? To be able to admit that and sometimes sit in the gray. So I think you handled that really well. Um, Susie, just curious, some families experience the disability, but some experience the disability and medical trauma. Absolutely. Do you have words of wisdom for dealing with medical malpractice injuries or false allegations of medical child abuse and removal from the home? Well, first of all, I think it's really important to acknowledge that there can be trauma that goes along with our experiences. And that's something that we are recognizing more and more in the sibling community. We um, just updated our sib shop curriculum and we included a whole section on trauma-informed practice 
because not every sibling experiences trauma, but certainly, certainly many do. And um, we are, you know, doing a service to all siblings, all children by using trauma-informed practices. Um, in terms of dealing with the medical malpractice injury, the false allegations, can you say more about that, Susie, in terms of your question about the impact on the sibling? Oh, I can start my video. Here I am. Yay. Nice to see you. <laughs> Likewise. Um, Susie, do you want to say more about, um, in terms of what you're asking in terms of the, the impact on the sibling? Um, okay. Yes. She's going to go ahead and. While she's, while she's typing that, or maybe she's going to, she's going to come on, I think, and, and say. Unmute. All right, Susie, you're live. Yep, we can hear you. Okay. So, um, I, I work for Mito Action, but I'm also, um, a parent of, um, uh, children that have suffered from mitochondrial disease. And so, you know, we've had different traumas, um, for instance, a miscarriage, um, and that definitely affected siblings. Um, one, one child was, I, I just really appreciate your answer about being honest. Um, one child was very angry because I had said that the heart was beating, um, you know, around four weeks, and I miscarried in the 12th week, and the child was most angry at me because um, I had told her that the heart was beating and in fact it wasn't, but you wouldn't know because the child didn't develop um, as far as having a body, um, just, you know. So there's been these kinds of trauma and then there's also, um, there's a lot of the false accusations of Munchausen by proxy and um, those do play a role on your whole relationship with the community. And then the siblings want to know, you know, sometimes if somebody's pulled out of the home, um, sometimes the siblings pulled out of the home too. Um, what, what, um, it's so difficult just to have the disability, but then to have the different things around in the community with trauma, um, that can occur, social trauma, as well as physical trauma. Um, you know, my son's trauma was, um, was induced by um, a medical error. And, um, but, you know, it's affected all our lives, um, you know, still affecting our lives. Um, they're 21 years later. So I just wondered what you would say about that, um, dealing with siblings and, and, and the trauma and um, helping people who've been falsely accused. Yeah, yeah, thank you for for sharing more, Susie. Um, Again, I think it's really important to be honest. And, you know, we're talking about really complex situations that sometimes it's hard for us to understand, right? Really complex situations involving um, not only health and medicine, but also systems, right? Systems that um, aren't always fair, systems that 
are created with the best intentions, but don't always um, don't always reach the goals that they're intended to reach, right? Um, systems that can be broken. And so I think it's really important to consider the child's perspective. And when they ask questions, hopefully they ask questions and encourage them to ask questions, right? I mean, I think open communication is really the key. And it sounds like a cliche and very simple, but eliminating kind of the stigma and the, um, like the taboo around talking about certain things like disease, like disability, like these situations that can cause trauma. I think it only adds to the anxiety and the fear and the uncertainty. So I think, first of all, getting a sense of where the child's at, right? Because we know from from our perspective of, of various traumas, we know what they mean to us, but we don't always know what the child is going through and so, or how the child is perceiving um, what is going on around them. So I think it's really important to gauge that, right? And to ask, you know, about any given situation, um, you know, this is a big situation. What, what questions do you have? How do you feel about it, right? What do you think? Where, where are you at with all of this? Because I think sometimes like we really don't know what we don't know and we can make assumptions about what the child is thinking or feeling, but we don't know until we ask them, right? And sometimes, you know, from a child's perspective, when we think about um, child development, you know, child development experts say that for a child to feel loved and secure and cared for, you know, it's not these big sleeping gestures, it's these small consistent actions, right? And so, um, building in time for conversation, um, inviting questions, asking how the child's feeling. Like, even if they don't understand the bigger things that are going on around them, I mean, a miscarriage is a hard thing to understand, like even for adults sometimes, right? But I would find out like, what does that mean for you? What is important for you about it? And just be honest in answering questions um, in the, the most, um, simple um, way that the child can understand and continue to reassure them that you can always, they can always talk with you and you will always be there to talk with them. So I think that's really important to just figure out where the kiddo is at and really be honest about that. Right. And also know that, you know, with kids, like with siblings, for example, we talk about the need for information. And when we ask kiddos how they want information, about the disability or the disease or whatever, time and time again, they say they don't want a big sit down conversation like a birds and the bees conversation. They want um, more informal, um, short, casual, ongoing conversations, right? On the way to soccer practice or, or when they get home from school so that these really big topics that can cause trauma, um, become something that it's okay to talk about and it's okay to sort of process how I feel about it. I hope that's I helpful. That's, I think that's really, really great. Um, I, there are a couple more questions that filtered in. And so I want to make sure that um, 
uh, we get to those two, there's one question and it's kind of a two-part question. So I'm going to ask it to you. It went into the chat. I'm going to ask you the first part and then follow up with the second part. Um, this mom asked if you have any ideas about finding that special respite caregiver during a time of COVID where you're trying to protect the child that has mitochondrial disease. Um, good au pairs, care.com. Like what are kind of like you mentioned um, earlier a little bit about the importance of respite. Can you talk about that? Um, gosh, the, really the only, the only few things I can say about respite are, it's really important. As I said before, there is never enough of it. And I would, and it's, it so varies by region, right? I mean, we work with a national audience, an international audience, really. So I would turn to your trusted providers. I would turn to other parents to see what they've done. Um, I don't know if family members are ever an option, that can be a real challenge to find care for the child um, with the diagnosis, like to find appropriate care. Um, maybe local early intervention centers, um, they might have staff who might provide respite on the side. Um, so I would, if it's not conflict of interest. So unfortunately I can't provide any specifics to your location, but those are the kinds of things that I would look at. I don't know a lot about care.com. I know that there are providers who specifically are categorized as special needs, or I'm not sure what they're calling it these days. That's worth looking into for sure. Um, but I would really, I would kind of look to your local providers um, and see if they might have staff who might be able to provide respite. And it is, it's absolutely tricky too, like you mentioned with COVID, because you want to make sure you're on the same page with the person that's coming into your home and um, with COVID tests and all that kind of stuff too. So um, the other part of her question is, what is the best way to let your well child live? So this parent has two children, one, you know, who's second and her well child. What is the best way to let your well child live at the same time, protecting the mito child from getting sick, COVID or a cold? What happens emotionally? When you are, when you have to separate the well child from the sick child, um, like if the child is medically fragile and they need to be separated for a week or a month, how do you kind of navigate that with the sibling? Yeah, well, I think that's a great question. And gosh, life just became so much more complicated because of COVID in so many ways, especially for our families, right? And so, um, First of all, I think to acknowledge the challenges is really important. Um, you know, this is really hard. This really stinks when we have to separate. And I would also kind of encourage you to invite the possibility that this is also a good thing, right? So that the child, because the, the, the well child, the sibling is probably feeling um, the need to have some space, right? And to... Um, not necessarily feel confined by the limitations um, that the that the disease can impose on not only their sibling but the family, right? So it can be really healthy and really good for the the sibling to have some space to um, spend time with friends and and to um, really kind of develop their own interests and relationships outside of the family, and to acknowledge. That, that might feel hard sometimes, right? That it's not, it's not all one thing or the other, as I said before, it's not um, 
all great, right? Because there is this part of you that feels maybe guilty and that maybe you miss being with your sib, or maybe you're sad that your sib can't do the things that you can do. And it's okay to need that time for yourself. It's okay to um, take care of yourself. And that's something that all of us as parents can model for our kids too. And I think we're all, I don't want to speak for everyone here, but I think it's really hard for many of us as caregivers to care for ourselves and to take time to care, to, to take care of ourselves. And I think that's such an important skill and value to model for our kids because it's really important for us to teach our kids and siblings, especially that it's okay to take care of themselves. Right. That's a hard thing for us to learn and do, but so necessary. Yeah. Yeah. We also have a, we have a patient who was asking, um, it's an adult patient and she's asking, do you have any recommendations on how to bring other adult siblings um, back to the table? She said, my sibling who um, we were once very quite close um, has largely disappeared out of my life since the exacerbation of my disability six years ago. Yeah. And I think that that is um, it. I can imagine that that would be very difficult and painful and I think that the, the more we do a lot of panels now of adult sibling pairs to hear kind of both sides of the story. And the more stories we hear, the more we recognize that there are a lot of similarities between the experience of the person with the diagnosis and the sibling. Um, for example, guilt, right? Um, recently on a panel, uh, a sibling, a sibling, an unaffected sibling said, oh, I always felt guilty because, you know, you were the one who had this disability and and I felt guilty that I didn't. And the sibling who had the diagnosis said, I always felt guilty because I was taking all this time and attention away from you, but I didn't mean to, I didn't want to, but you know, it was a reality. Um, And so it's just so interesting to see the different sides of the same coin. And so you know, I don't know how you communicate with your sibling, um, but if there's some way that you can invite a conversation to just kind of acknowledge the challenges that they may have experienced, right, growing up as a result of your diagnosis and the challenges that you have had, I I deeply believe that you will find many similarities, like that you will find some shared experiences that you can um, maybe connect around. Because I don't know what your situation is, but many siblings say like, oh my gosh, we've never talked about this. Like we've never talked about this. This panel is the first time we're actually sitting down talking about it. And when they start talking, it's like, oh, you felt that way? I felt that way too. So, um, and again, I don't know the particulars of your situation, but I think maybe trying to reach some common ground and acknowledge that, this experience is hard for both of you. And there are also silver linings to it. And maybe you can connect over the silver linings, right? Because you're part of this amazing community and maybe maybe bringing your sibling into this community would be a way to, um, to, to build a bridge as well. So. so kind of like why we're talking about adult sibling relationships, I'm curious if you can kind of, um, talk a little bit about 
how the sibling relationship changes over the years. And like, and um, you mentioned too, in your presentation, a little bit about, um, you know, the need to kind of talk to your siblings about uh, as a parent, but just even within each other, like what happens when mom and dad are gone? Like, when do you start broaching some of those conversations um, as well? Yeah. So um, really good question. In terms of how the sibling relationship changes, if we think about the course of the lifespan and the um, level of involvement we have with siblings, and this is true of all siblings. This is not just true of siblings of people um, you know, with particular diagnoses or, or disabilities. This is true of all siblings, people in the general population. That if we look over the course of the lifespan, siblings spend a great deal of time together if we look kind of over the long haul, right? So, but that's particularly at the beginning of life, maybe at the first 18 years or so, right? We're living probably under the same roof. Maybe we're going to the same school, um, same church or synagogue or whatever the case might be, um, same family friends. As we get older, as a natural part of the life course, we move away from our families of origin, right? We turn into tweens and then teens and we want to have nothing to do with our families. I'm sure we all remember that. Uh, and then we might go away to college or move to another city for a job. Maybe we start our own family, right? We, we build lives for ourselves that take us away from our family of origin and, and we have less contact with our siblings. And so like for the adult sibling who just asked the question, I don't know what, what life stage you're in, but if you're kind of in that middle stage of life, it's not so uncommon that siblings drift, right? Just because life kind of takes people in different directions. Then what we find is that as we get older, uh, we sort of start to spend more time together again. Maybe we have aging parents that we're coming together to care for. Maybe we're having health concerns. We're looking after each other. Maybe our kids fly, fly the nest, right? We're empty nesters. Um, and so, so at different stages of life, there's um, different levels of involvement with our siblings and different needs that we all have as individuals, right? So, um, and that has its impact on our relationships. So there's that. Um, in terms of the future planning, it is so tricky. We, around here, we like to say that future planning should begin early and occur often. And what we mean by that is, you know, future planning should be the process by which a family is able to talk about any kind of transition that's happening, right? And so it might be an IEP meeting at school. It might be, oh, we need to plan for the transition after high school, right? These are, this is how we kind of get into the habit of planning for the future so that by the time we're talking about the time when mom and dad are no longer around, right? The future isn't this big ominous thing that we've never talked about. It's the next step, right? And I'm not saying it's, that makes it completely easy. I mean, who wants to talk about a time when I'm no longer here? Like, I don't really, you know, that's not my idea of a fun conversation, but the truth is it's a really important conversation, right? So that, you know, if I'm the parent, I, as a parent know what my, my, my wishes are, I know what my affected child's wishes are, what my, uh, my, uh, the siblings wishes are, and we can kind of talk about it and piece together a plan that everyone can live with, right? Like maybe we compromise, um, and the sibling, it's so important 
because the truth is we adult siblings, like we, we wind up in the role of caregiver one way or the other. And it's a much more, um, we come from a much more empowered and willing place as a caregiver if we've had a voice and some choices along the way, that it's not this thing that's happening to us with all of these assumptions that we've never talked about. And I think that once we do start having those conversations, it can relieve a lot of anxiety and fear of the unknown, right? Because we're naming, we're naming the dream and trying to work towards that. We're naming the nightmare and trying to work away from that. And until we name those two things, you know, it's really hard to move forward in a way that's going to help us realize our, our, our goals for the future. Absolutely. Um, we had a question that she was asking, if you could repeat the book and author on your website, how to talk to your kids so your kids will oh, listen. Could I you... have it right here. Look at this. I, I love, this is like my, can you guys see it? Yeah. Um, this is like, this book has been around forever. It's a really fun, look, I just turned, it's got cartoons. It's a fun and easy read and it's all about active listening. And, you know, I often say this when I talk with people about siblings and I, I mean, I think it's really true for anyone, but especially for siblings, you know, siblings want to be heard and validated. And like, we all live in a world that there are many things that we wish we could change or fix that we can't, right? And so in that knowledge, that wisdom that we all have as human beings, the importance of being heard and validated is, is immense. And so if a sibling is, you know, lamenting that, you know, something is unfair or the situation is so hard, it goes such a long way to validate that. And to say, I hear that, I hear you. And you're right, it is hard, right? Um, one of the most powerful things that my mom ever said to me, I was probably a teenager, you know, those teen, teen years. Um, and I was having a complete meltdown and I was crying and I was saying, it's just not fair, mom. It's just not fair. Like I was really carrying on. And she looked at me and she said, you know what, Emily? You're right, it's not fair. The world is not a fair place. And I wish it was. And that kind of like, I was like, oh, okay. So I'm not crazy. I'm right. Right. Teenagers like to be right. But I also just felt so validated and it's like, okay, well now, now I know what I'm working with. Right. And that was kind of the honesty piece of it too. So I hope that that begins to answer that question. I feel like we could, we could talk about that for a really long time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that validation is, is so, so important. It does go a long way sometimes just, and it doesn't take much. It can be a simple sentence or two. Um, For sure. Especially with kids, you know, the kind of the, it's funny, I'm doing a training for a group in Argentina, a SIP shop training, and they're all clinicians. Like they're like doctors and, you know, psychologists. And, and I said, you know, SIP shops are not a clinical intervention. They're not, a, not therapy group or otherwise. And they, they were like, what do you mean? Like they had many questions about this. And I said, you know, the beauty of the sip shop is it meets kids where they're at because most of the time, and that's what this book is about. Most of the time, kids don't need our solutions. They don't need us to fix it. They need us to hear them and move on to hear them and validate them. And that really enables them to move on. And so when we do discussion activities in sip shops, you know, a lot of the time it's like, 
just the fact that they can say something like, I really, really resent my sib sometimes, which is a scary feeling and a scary thing to say that they would never say to you as parents, right? And to, and to be validated and say, yeah, I can understand why you would resent your sib sometimes. It's like, oh, okay, <laughs> you know, like let's go eat some popcorn or whatever. So um, yes, so that is a great book a little crash course in active listening, which goes such a long way, especially with kids, especially with siblings, but with anyone, you know, just this idea to hear and validate. So important. We're hitting the one o'clock mark, but I want to make sure that like, if you can quickly maybe just talk a little bit about like, what does a sib shop look like? Um, if, if I were to want to get somebody involved, you know, um, and, and not just for, for the kids, but also like if I'm a young adult and wanted to, you know, be a part of a sub shop, but like, what is that, what does that space look like if I'm doing it virtually? Cause I know some of it's changed with COVID and stuff. Yeah. So there, um, since, since COVID, uh, just about every sub shop, uh, went virtual, uh, at least for a time, a lot are now back in person or doing a hybrid, but the, the basic idea, as I said in the presentation is, siblings can get together for information, support, and fun, right? Sib shops really center around this idea of play um, because we're dealing with kids after all. And, you know, some of our little siblings can be like little mini adults, like with the weight of the world on their shoulders. So we first and foremost want to make sure that they're coming to us and they can just be kids. Um, So in a sib shop, we get together, whether it's online, just like this, or um, together in a space, and we do a bunch of different activities. We, um, we have high energy activities, lower energy activities, um, introductory activities, and discussion activities. And those discussion activities are really what distinguish a sib shop, I think, from maybe other kinds of models. Um, and we have discussions not only about our sibs and our, our life as siblings, but about our lives in general. One thing we hear a lot from siblings, especially adult siblings, kind of reflecting back, we say, you know, what, what is one thing you, you know, maybe wish um, had, had been done differently growing up? And so many siblings say, you know, I wish that I was acknowledged and recognized and valued for things outside of being my sibling's helper, right? Um, and that somebody just asked me how I was doing in school, like just as a kid, as a human being. And so a lot of our activities really are designed to help us learn more about the kids that we're working with. Who are they? And to help them understand who they are outside of their role as siblings. So it's not all about siblings all the time. Um, And and it's such a big question, honestly, Stephanie. It's like sib shops everywhere kind of look a little bit different. We have like a basic formula, but they can be online. The online ones um, are usually 60 or 90 minutes, depending Um, Sometimes the facilitator will send home like little goodie bags or craft bags so that they can do crafts together online or do a recipe or something. Um, In-person sip shops, they are typically two to four hours on or near a weekend. They um, have a lot of fun, high energy, running around games, arts and crafts. And then, of course, those discussion activities. And we feed them. Food is love in sip shops. So. (laughs) So they look different. Um, You can go to our website and try to find one in your local community. Um, Stephanie and I are talking about hopefully maybe introducing the idea of sip shops 
um, to Mito Action and maybe you guys getting involved and offering something for your families. That's my hope, my dream. Well, I always say we just want as many soup shops as we have siblings. So um, where there's a need, we hope that there's a soup shop. So, yeah. Absolutely. Well, as thank you so much, Emily. You're such a wealth of knowledge. We really appreciate all the time and energy um, you put into the presentation and just chatting with us today. Um, I just wanted to give you a space, like before I close out, if there's a story or of like encouragement. I know sometimes like our parents worry like about about their siblings, you know, like for the future and, and the way. Like, and I'm wondering, like, as being a sibling yourself, if there's like a word of encouragement or or something that you felt really grateful about in regards to being a sibling as a kid. Like looking back, maybe you didn't realize like it was a blessing in disguise that you like were a sibling um, just to provide some encouragement to our parents. Absolutely. I think there are so many wonderful aspects of being a sibling and we really celebrate those in sib shops. And, and when I talk with people about siblings, I always emphasize the fact that there are challenges and concerns, but there are also incredible opportunities. You know, the appreciation that we have for our families. I sometimes think that parents will worry about what is my child going say to say about me when I drop them off at the sib shop door. And I think these parents would be so pleasantly surprised to know that their, their kiddos speak about them and their families with such gratitude, with such appreciation. You know, your kiddos recognize that you are juggling. You have a lot of balls in the air, right? To use that metaphor. And um, there's a tremendous amount of appreciation there. And so um, kudos to you all for, I mean, the fact that you're even here listening to this presentation means you're doing something right because you're already thinking about, you know, your, your kiddos, all of your kiddos. And then the other piece of it is being able to connect with a community of siblings um, has been incredible. And, and I didn't get a chance to do that until I was an adult. I wish when I was a kid, we had sib shops and I hear so many other adult siblings say, gosh, I wish we had sib shops when I was a kiddo because, um, and you know, this as families who are in it, you guys are really in it. It can be a very isolating feeling, right. To have a child who has this diagnosis, this disease, and that isolation can extend to siblings as well. And I hope that you have all found um, comfort and a lot of joy in knowing each other and getting to know each other and not walking this path alone. For siblings, it's really the same thing. Like the ability to meet other kids who are on a similar path is so validating and empowering. And it's something that they will bring forward with them throughout their lives. Like this is a community that we start in sib shops and that extends all the way through the lifespan. And um, it really is a lifeline for many siblings um, to share those challenges and concerns, but also to celebrate the good stuff, right? And there's a lot, there's a lot of good stuff too. So, yeah. So I just thank you so much for, making this space to think about and talk about siblings today. We really appreciate it. And if anyone has questions, you can certainly reach out to me. Um, my email is on our website, siblingsupport.org. And hopefully we'll be doing some more stuff with you guys in the future. So Sounds great. Thank you so much for everybody that um, is here today and anyone that is watching uh, this video at a later time. Um, we're really, really excited uh, to 
have been able to spend this time chatting about this important information and know that you are not alone in this, that we are all in this together. And um, just as a reminder, today's presentation will be posted on our website for anyone who would like to listen again or share with a friend. So if you're listening to this presentation and you're like, oh, wow, I really wish so-and-so was on here, um, feel free to send them a copy of this recorded session. You can find the full catalog of the expert series presentations on your Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and on our website website at www.mitoaction.org. Thank you so much for joining us today and have a wonderful weekend. We look forward to staying in touch until next time.